1: When I first started at National Journal, I was the only black person in the company for a good period of time. And the perspective that I took is that I just need to keep my head down. I needed to be the most excellent employee that the organization had, because if I wasn't, I would not be judged equally. Now, whether that was true or perceived, I don't know, but that certainly was a perspective that I was going against. So I was very focused on the job. I didn't go to happy hours. So I spent a large part of the first part of my career conforming to what I thought I had to be to rise through the ranks in corporate America. Hi, my name is Kevin Turpin and I am a modern minority.
3: but we're no one's model minority.
2: This is a show about all of you for all of us. Today, I'm talking to Kevin Turpin, the president of National Journal, a legacy media company for DC insiders. Under Kevin's leadership, he has transformed the National Journal into an all-encompassing resource for government affairs executives, and other policy influencers working in today's landscape. Additionally, Kevin is a member of the Diversity and Government Relations Coalition, which actively champions diversity, equity, and inclusion in local, state, and federal policymaking. Kevin and I had a one-on-one chat about his upbringing in Buffalo, his childhood or his formative years of his childhood in Virginia Beach, And all of the experiences and adventures that have led him to where he is today. I found Kevin to be extremely thoughtful, extremely empathetic. I really loved how he's bringing a very open mindset with a clear lens into diversity into his role, which impacts not just the people in his business and within his organization, but really impacts how the National Journal is approaching their partnerships with other companies, other government entities, and therefore impacting change on a much bigger level. I loved our chat. I just really think he has such great energy. And I think you guys are going to really enjoy my conversation with Kevin Turpin. Hi, Kevin. Thank you so much for being here with us today.
1: Thank you, Sharon, for having me.
2: It's, it's a total joy and pleasure because we've tried to make this happen now. This is probably like, I think, our second or third time trying to make it happen. So yeah. they always say third time's a charm, right? <laughs> Here we are.
1: <laughs> the, the we're exactly.
2: Here we are. So, Kevin, we always start out with this question, and um, many of our guests get asked this question, where are you from?
1: Yeah, so I always answer this question in two ways. So I was born in Buffalo, New York. Go Bills. Go Bills! I went to UB for two years, actually. Oh, fantastic! My dad yeah. graduated from University of Buffalo, so cool. Yeah, so that is my birthplace, and I actually went or started school there. Uh, and my family moved after the third grade to Virginia Beach. Uh, so when I was eight year eight years old, uh, my family moved to Virginia Beach, and I grew up in Virginia Beach. Right, I did most of my school there, so. Typically, when people ask me that question, I say I'm from Virginia Beach, but my birthplace, uh, in hometown, uh, is Buffalo, New York.
2: And do you ever get a follow up question where people ask you where are you really from? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. You know, people always say you have to choose one. Uh, if if I had to choose one, I would say Virginia Beach, just because that again, those were most of my formative years.
2: Yeah. So in Virginia Beach, I, I mean, I know a lot about Buffalo because I was there for for two years. Yes. Very cold, usually snows anywhere from like October until sometimes like April, depending uh, on the year.
1: I remember, I, I actually have a great story on that. Uh, one Christmas, I got this Buffalo Bills spring jacket. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was so excited to wear it. I think I was in second grade. And I don't think I wore it until May. So... Uh.
2: Because <laughs> you just couldn't, a right?
1: I couldn't wear. I had to keep my winter coat on.
2: <laughs> I think like whenever the temperatures hit 50 degrees, people would literally break out their shorts yeah. and just walk around Absolutely. wearing
0: shorts. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Buffalo is such a funny town. Um, the wings are great though. I mean, like Anchor Bar, Duff's, like you and I, yeah, we should we should oh, plan the, a... The food uh, in general
1: there. Is, is actually underrated. It, it has... These underrated great food spots that I still have fond memories of my family going to for dinner.
2: Yeah, yeah. And food is such a big part of everything. Which we're—I have some questions about about food later on. But going back to going back to childhood and growing up. So Virginia Beach. What was that like growing up? Like, what was the neighborhood like? Who, who are the people in your community in Virginia Beach? Yeah, that's that's a great question.
1: You know, Virginia Beach is a military town.
0: Mm hmm.
1: Uh, so I believe, at least when I was growing growing up, every branch of the military was there. So I set that context to say it actually has some real diversity in the high schools it's because the military attracts a diverse set uh, of individuals as service members. So I actually grew up around. A lot of different types of folks that were from many different places, not only in the country, but in the world. And I appreciate that about my upbringing. My actual neighborhood, I would say, you know, it was a, a middle class neighborhood. It had some diversity, certainly majority white. My high school was uh, certainly majority white, but it, it had some real diversity in it. So, you know, I grew up in that environment mm-hmm, yeah. uh, and it really Gave me a chance to interact with people from different cultures. I had friends that were from different cultures. I played sports uh, when I was growing up. Uh, so uh, that certainly gave me the opportunity to interact with different types of people. But also, I was I was a pretty dedicated student. Uh, so in my classes in high school, when I was in the honors classes, you know, those classes tended to be not as diverse right. as uh, the school writ large. So I always had it... Interesting upbringing in that I I floated between a lot of different worlds, and then to put on top of that, my dad uh, became a pastor when I was in ninth grade And the church that he co-founded had a mission of being multi-ethnic, uh, which you could do there in Virginia Beach because you had a lot of different people from different places. Yeah. So then being in that environment where you actually had a religious environment that was diverse intentionally
0: mm-hmm. was
1: an interesting, interesting world to be a part of and to witness. So that, that really shaped what I think my ability to be comfortable in a lot of different environments yeah. where a lot of my friends, they, they had environments that tended to not be diverse, whether they were my black friends or white friends or Asian friends and so on and so forth. And I can say, I always got the opportunity to be in a diverse environment. And I I, I count that as a blessing. Yeah. It allows me to operate uh, in the world we live in today from a place of empathy, a place of listening, a a place of being open to others' experiences that I think a lot of folks don't get that chance to develop that muscle uh, when they're growing up like I did
2: right yeah you you you're describing almost this perfect bubble of being able to being able to be in this utopious environment where one your dad was at the very core of this community that he created right he he founded he co-founded the
1: oh, right. yeah.
2: environment and the whole purpose of the environment or a big a big part of that was to bring people together from different places
1: exactly right and i don't want to overstate that that it it was perfect. I think when you're intentional about creating environments, you're actually inviting the tension. Yeah, so I was able to witness the tensions and the things that separate us. Yeah, in, in the collective us as a human, uh, the human race, in a very uh, specific way.
2: Yeah, say more. Especially as a child, seeing that, like, what was that yeah, like? Yeah,
1: as a in, in this was my formative years as as a teenager because. The environment that became diverse was a majority white environment that my dad actually partnered with a white gentleman from South Dakota. Mm -hmm. Uh, My dad and our family was obviously from New York, from Buffalo, but by way of Long Island, Uh, they grew up in Long Island. Right. And to have them come together with this vision, Mm -hmm. certainly they came to it from a point that only God could do this because humans have been trying to do this for a long time and it's very difficult. Uh, so once the church started to become more diverse, you started to see the things that easily divide us, uh, politics, uh, certainly cultural norms. But the beauty in it was, at least from a religious context, keeping God at the center allowed all of us to see the things that actually connect us and to get past all of these assumptions we make about each other And to actually get to know the people and to see that we had things in common, that we all loved our families, we all wanted the best for our families, those things really started to take over for uh, some of the things that easily divide us. Now, I now go to a a multi-ethnic church here in the D.C. area. I will say there's certainly been a marked difference even within a, a religious environment in the current climate in our country mm-hmm. uh than when 20 years ago or 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 25 years ago when my father and his partner in co founding that multi ethnic church uh were doing it. And I, I think it's harder, right? Because
0: right. Uh, all the right. lines
1: have hardened across those things that divide us and people are going into their corners. But, you know, because I've I've seen where people from different cultures can come together i don't lose hope that it can happen but i would be remiss not to say that it's getting harder and harder
2: yeah i absolutely agree i think um we're in a very interesting time right now and even you just describing something that you know probably was at least 20 30 years ago with that just a beautiful melding of different cultures i'm like wow that's It just sounds so unique right now. You know, like the world does feel very, very separate right now. And it kind of gives reason for conversations like this that you and I are having. You know, I think the more we can share our stories with other people and the more we're willing to listen to someone else's perspective, the more we can understand each other. So what did you, when you were young, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: You know, it's switched around so much. So when I was very young, I wanted to be on the SWAT team. Which I, really? I, never, I, <laughs> I, I, I think I thought it was cool to like knock down the door and, and things like that. I was a very, yeah. very uh, typical a young boy who like to like to play cops uh, with my friends. However, that quickly changed. And actually, when I was going into college, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Okay, so I studied I studied psychology, and pretty much through my first year of college, I said, oh, I don't think I want to go the law track. And then uh, that switched to me thinking I wanted the mixture of business and psychology. So Mm -hmm. I was looking to do industrial psychology, which I knew was going to take a PhD. So I graduated from college with that in mind. And I said, you know, I don't want to go right back into a graduate program. I want to take a break from college for a little bit. And I just started working. And after my first year of work, where I was in a sales role, I said, you know what? Business is really interesting to me. And I didn't know exactly what part of business was going to be interesting. Obviously, I was getting a a firsthand look at uh, the most important part of business, which is you have to figure out how to sell a service or a product to create a balance sheet. Hopefully you sell more than you spend. And I was on the trying to sell more side. But I quickly started to get a niche within that, in that looking at how we were trying to grow ourselves year to year at National Journal, which is, which is the place I still work at.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I got really interested in product development and how, if you listen to markets and you listen to what your prospects are telling you in the sales calls, that really the magic in business is matching product to need. Yeah, So that's when I really started to hone in on what I wanted to do, where I really want to be on the, strategy, the product strategy side and figuring out how to operate a business around a really clear product strategy that is matched to strongly felt challenges in a market. And that set me down that path. And mm-hmm. I, I, I eventually got to that path within National Journal. And I always say the rest is history where uh, I eventually became the president of the organization.
2: That's amazing. And so you went from wanting to bust down doors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to being where you are today. Exactly. What, did your, what did your parents want you to be when you were growing up?
1: You know, I, and this is really, really true. I appreciate that my parents never really put pressure on me to be any specific thing. My parents instilled in me a couple things, that whatever you do, we want you to work hard. And I saw that. They modeled that but whatever things they were doing from a career perspective, they were both really diligent and hard workers. Number two, they wanted me always to operate with integrity. Mm-hmm. That whatever I was doing, I would do it in an honest way. And I would do it from doing what I said I would do uh, in being a man of my word to treating people really well. And that flows into the third thing. They really instilled kindness in me. Yeah, whatever Whatever I was doing that, I was being kind to coworkers, kind to whoever I work with, whether it be serving uh, clients or Mm -hmm. uh, if I became a leader, uh, managing staff, et cetera. So I set that context to say, I would tell them I would want to be something and they would say, great. (laughs) (laughs) Then you should pursue that and set a goal. How are you going to get there? But they didn't necessarily dictate what that was. For example, being a pastor's son a lot of people automatically see pastor's kids and they think that, you know, they, they're going want to want to be in the ministry. Mm-hmm. And my dad nor my mom ever put any of that pressure on me. In fact, I think there's probably opposite for my mom where she's like, "Do be, be anything but a pastor.
2: <laughs> right, uh, right.
1: But, but that, uh, that is something that they held true to. Even today, they're incredibly proud, obviously, that I became a president of a company and I'm a leader in our community. But they still care about those three things over what I do.
2: Yeah. And you turned out okay because you're the president of a company. So yeah. really, it's yeah. not like, you know, you went from wanting to be a lawyer and then God forbid you became an actor or something, right? Like, <laughs> no,
0: exactly. exactly.
2: I married an actor, so I could say that lovingly. <laughs> and that's great. So, you know, you, you you expressed so much passion about your career trajectory and how you ended up at National Journal. Mm-hmm. How How do those values that, both your parents were were wanting you to display career-wise and everything you're talking about with, you know, solving product business goals and strategy and helping people in those ways. How do you mold all, meld all of that together into what you're doing yeah. today in your
1: current job? It's a great question. You know, the great thing about my job now is I truly get to touch all of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so being the head of National Journal Group, which... Just to give some context on what National Journal Biz, it's a it's an information services and advisory firm based out of Washington D.C. Uh, that provides both journalism and research and consulting, mostly to government affairs executives, but increasingly to senior executives in the communications and public affairs realms in Fortune 500 companies. Uh, so. Leading this or leading our organization, I get to think about product and product strategy all the time Mm -hmm. because we've really been on a growth trajectory for the last decade where we've totally recreated what the business is, uh, where it used to be your traditional media company and the business model really was a media business model that we made money from advertising and through subscriptions. And today, it's such a different company and it's pulling in so many diversified revenue sources, whether it be from consulting or research and insight, or still uh, selling subscriptions to our journalism products. Mm -hmm. So that takes a lot of product creation, uh, which certainly we have had a lot of that over the last 10 years and where we've totally recreated our products. So I get to think about that all the time. But while thinking about that, that creates opportunities to grow mm-hmm. and to bring in new talent sets. So I get to hire new, uh, new people and people who have different skill sets as we're growing our product portfolio into different types of applications. So I'm talking to people constantly. I'm, I'm learning from them. Uh, I'm learning uh, about the skill sets that they have. And I'm trying to do all of that with kindness. And I'm trying to do that with a level of integrity that they can trust that we're going to do what we said we're going to do and that we're going to be there to support them to figure out what the product is because we're asking, yeah. often asking people to figure out a, a new product for a new market. So as you know, that takes time, that that takes yep. patience, et cetera. Yep. So I'm able to, you know, meld all of those leadership aspects in naturally. And then finally... Just leading an organization, especially in this environment where you have COVID and we certainly have had our fair share of things that divide us as humans uh, over the last five years and having the privilege to to lead a group of 130 plus individuals, many, many of them at the beginning of their career. You know, those things that my parents instilled in me, integrity, kindness, excellence, et cetera are things that are required of a leader right now, every day.
2: Yeah, I fully agree. And when you think about some of the more exciting projects that you've launched in, let's say, the last 12 months, what would you say they they would be?
1: Yeah, I, I think what we're really excited about right now is we've launched a research and insight service that is helping major corporations think about the issues that are outside of their core business portfolio, so these societal issues that we all are grappling with, Mm -hmm. whether it be racial equity or immigration or climate change, and really help the corporations stay aware of how these issues are developing, how different stakeholders view these issues, how the issues affect different stakeholders, all with the goal of helping corporations have the data that allows them to make Very thoughtful decisions on what their, what their role is or what their place is on these issues. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that work because one, I think it's a need in corporate America as corporations are being asked to, to be involved in things that traditionally they, they haven't been involved in. And number two, arming them with nonpartisan data and research that again helps them make better decisions. And I think that's just good for society uh, anytime. Institutions are making thoughtful, informed decisions.
2: Sure, and I'm just curious myself because I'm I'm on the homepage of your website now, <sighs> and I'm seeing logos like Shell and Johnson and Johnson and Volvo. So when these companies are coming to you and they are they're getting your insight, they're getting your strategic guidance. How are they implementing it? Like how how are we seeing it as customers or consumers of these products?
1: Sure. So, in just for clarity our businesses spans across different groups. So for example, the logos you're seeing are, are subscribers to some other work that we do Got and not necessarily it. Okay. that work. Just wanted okay. to do that for, for clarity right? Of, uh, reasons. But, you know, to take that example, we also do work for government affairs groups. We're just helping them stay as informed as possible on the, the movements of public policy in legislation in Washington mm-hmm. and doing that not only through our journalism but through things like products that we call the presentation center where we're creating business ready presentations that are giving updates on for example the midterm elections that are about to happen and right. once they happen we'll do a whole breakdown of the results in the way that that would be evidence is the government affairs groups of our members would be taking those decks and sharing those with their boards just to keep them informed about these are the results of the midterm elections and this is how it affects our company. Uh, So we're partnering with companies in that realm. So uh, generally we're a B2B business. So I don't think that the broader consumer audience would see it, but we're helping businesses be more effective and efficient every day.
2: Got it, got it. It's really interesting, right? It's kind of like you're taking... You're taking research facts and insights, and you are you're educating these really impactful organizations, government affair groups, maybe maybe Fortune one hundred companies, but you're allowing them to become advocates for these same issues with the insights that you're providing them with.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And and what I love about our position is we're we're, we're nonpartisan in mm-hmm. We stay out of the business of telling organizations what they should be doing. Uh, there are other organizations that are certainly organized that way, and that's their business model. Our belief is organizations make the best decisions when they're fully informed about the issues that they care about in the different stakeholder groups that they care about, how they're engaging with said issues. So that, right. that's a thread throughout our business in that we we really believe that information, data... And the insights that come out of looking at the comprehensive sets of data help organizations make better decisions.
2: Yeah, that's great. In your role today, or maybe on your ascent to your role, have you ever encountered a situation where you felt like you had to conform or you had to be somebody else to even be a part of the discussion? I mean, you're you're in a really powerful position right now, but I'm wondering as you were getting there, on your way there? Have you ever ran into
1: barriers like that? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, yes is the quick answer. Let me give you context around that. Sure. And I actually was in a, a discussion with, with a group of employees recently that I touched on this. You know, I came from a generation being a person of color and, and a black male for clarity on what, what perspective I'm coming from. Where when I graduated, at least for African Americans or Black Americans, I was really in maybe the second generation of Black Americans in this country that had full access to higher education. Full is being, being generous, but there were certainly many more Black Americans that were going into college that were in my generation and age group than the generation before, and certainly the generation before Mm -hmm. as far as African-Americans in this country. And I think that's important because when I came into the workforce, I certainly came from the perspective that there's more of us getting into the workforce, but there's not a lot. When I first started at National Journal, I was the only Black person in the company for, for a good period of time. Wow. And in fact, as I remember it, I was, if not the only probably less than five of people of color that were in the organization. Yeah. And the perspective that I took on being in that position is that I just need to keep my head down. Hmm. And I needed to be the most excellent employee that the organization had, because if I wasn't, I would not be judged equally to a, a white counterpart that was in the same role. Now, whether that was true or perceived, I don't know, but that certainly was a perspective that I was going against. So I came to work every day and I conformed into the super hardworking person that doesn't really have a lot of personal interaction with people. Yeah, I was very focused on the job, very focused on getting results in the job. I didn't go to happy hours and I didn't go to happy hours because I didn't feel comfortable going to happy hours. I wanted to keep myself out of conversations that I would have no idea what people were talking about because I was coming from a different perspective. And when I was in conversations, I had been in enough environments going back to my childhood. I got mm-hmm. so much experience talking to different types of people. I didn't know how to morph myself to be conversational enough where people would like me. Yeah, But I didn't necessarily have to go deep, even if it's a conversation I wasn't ultimately very interested in or I couldn't relate to uh, from my family background. So I spent a large part of the first part of my career conforming to what I thought I had to be to rise through the corporate ranks in corporate America. Hardworking, I kept the kindness, I never took on the I had to be like the aggressive, hard charging person, but I thought, hey, if I have the results, and I put a lot of pressure on myself to get the results, then if this is a meritocracy, then I can rise. Now, the credit to where I worked at National Journal, it truly was a meritocracy. It didn't matter who you were. If you brought in results, then you would get more and you would get more responsibility and you would get promotion. And that that was the case for me. But as far as fitting in the environment, I knew I didn't fully fit in. And I would you know conform just to be conversational enough to try to fit in, to make sure that people felt comfortable with me, which is something that minorities always talk about. Like, I I have to conform to this so they're comfortable. Absolutely. And I did did that constantly, probably for the first decade of my career.
2: Yeah. And then what changed? Well,
1: I got into leadership, right? Yeah. And my view in getting into leadership, the world changed a little bit Mm -hmm. when I got into leadership. I think people became more thoughtful about the environments that we're setting up in corporate America. Mm -hmm. I know we certainly became more thoughtful about it at National Journal. And with me being in leadership, I became more comfortable knowing the environment that I was in and actually having control over that environment. True. And changing some of the dynamics as I was not necessarily trying to change the focus on achievement. We want people who will achieve and work hard. I think that's a baseline for any employer's wishes of their employees but opening up opportunities for people to learn about their colleagues that might not have the same experiences that they had right uh, maybe worried about things that maybe other colleagues never think about and this is across this is cross identities uh, i'm a man being more open to how a woman in our organization or a transgender individual right. may be experiencing the workplace you know, we didn't have those conversations when I started work. And I think those are good conversations to have so we can all be more thoughtful. So I've actually been intentional in our organization about us having those conversations regularly, bringing in facilitators that help us think about the different identities that people had, have and how they experience work. And I think it's improved us as an organization, mm-hmm. uh, certainly from the environment that we're creating, but also uh, the ideas that we get, we hear from more people. People are more comfortable speaking up and speaking out about ideas they have to improve our culture, to improve our products, markets that we can serve. All these things, I think, have been net pluses to our organization on being able to create that environment. And that's an environment that I'm being intentional about creating. The last thing I'll say about this is, I believe diversity, equity, and inclusion is actually a mindset. I think a lot of organizations look at it as a program that you do once and then you're done. Mm -hmm. And I think true diversity, equity, and inclusion is uh, actually saying, hey, I'm never going to be done. We're never going to get there. This is about me always being thoughtful about how we can be more inclusive in how that can affect our business. You can be one idea away from your next multimillion dollar product if you were just thoughtful about that one employee that has a great idea but doesn't feel exactly comfortable on how to plug in. And if you're constantly thinking about it and you're remaining thoughtful about it, knowing your mistakes are going to be made and being honest about those mistakes and then addressing them quickly, that creates an environment where good ideas are always rising up because you create an inclusive environment where that can happen. I love that. And now a word from our sponsor,
3: the Department of Health and Human Services.
2: Oh, yeah. HHS has still got it. Have they got a cure for for my holiday shopping blues?
3: Sure. I mean, if you count preventing COVID as the cure for the holiday blues.
2: Well, I guess it is that time again to encourage everyone to get their COVID vaccine.
3: Oh yeah, vaccines.
2: (laughs) You know, getting my vaccine card updates is like getting my subway card punched. If only it came with a free sandwich. I think it did for a while, uh, at least
3: free donuts. But, uh, you know, Sharon, getting your latest updated COVID vaccine is even better with the holidays upon us, especially if it means getting more time to safely catch up with your family.
2: Ah, yes. Updated vaccines now protect against the original COVID virus and Omicron, which means we all have more time to enjoy that home cooking and mom dishes that we've all been craving.
3: Yeah, these latest vaccines are here just in time to make those family gatherings safer and extra special.
2: Boom! just did it. Uh,
3: did what? Find the perfect holiday gift for all your family, friends, and favorite (laughs) podcast
2: co-hosts? No, even better. I just scheduled my free vaccine today. Oh, snap. That was pretty easy. Damn straight. Find updated COVID vaccines for everyone over the age of five at vaccines.gov. Just be sure to bring candy for everyone five and up. I'm a big fan of candy, for sure. Um, And our kids do like a good candy chaser to go with all of their vaccines. Kids, anyone
3: five and up deserves a post-vaccine candy treat, (laughs) uh, present company included. It is the holiday season after all.
2: Fair enough. COVID is serious stuff. And we want to make sure all of you, our ridiculously thoughtful, stylish, hip, and favorite podcast listeners, are getting the latest and greatest COVID vaccines.
3: Especially with those amazing holiday sweaters. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, Sharon. COVID is still serious stuff, so we've all got to do everything we can to keep ourselves and the people we love safe.
2: Let's all do our part to protect ourselves, our families, and our communities this holiday season.
3: Talk to a doctor if you have any questions. You can find the latest vaccines near you at vaccines.gov.
2: We can do this together. This spot was
3: paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, who we are big fans of.
2: But now, back to our show. I feel like, I mean, you are are literally painting such a beautiful picture of the type of environment that I think we all want to work in. And the fact that you are leading a company with this mindset is very, very inspiring. So it's absolutely amazing. Thank you. If we were to go, no, before we go to that, I want to pivot to something else because I read something that I thought was really very sweet. A little birdie told me that you married your wife at the age of 23.
1: Yes. Yes. (laughs) How long ago was that? So we celebrated 15 years this past July.
2: Wow. That is amazing. And how did you guys meet? And how did you know that she was the one? Because 20, when I think about where I was at 23, I was not. Yeah. I was definitely not thinking about, you know, married, being yeah. with someone for the rest of my life. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> yeah. We, we met when we were 17 at Georgetown. Wow. And, and actually, I always mm-hmm. tell the story. We met before school even started. We were dating a month in. Oh, and yeah. we we were together all of college, so we were college sweethearts. Yeah, and you know i I knew that she was the one probably junior year of college, right? And I don't know, I don't <laughs> know when she would say, but you know, we grew up together, and that that's interesting about our experience. We've truly, in every sense of the word, grown up together. Yeah, we've experienced a lot of things together. We've experienced coming into adulthood together. We've experienced co- career growth together. We've experienced high points and low points together. So she really is my partner in life. And we certainly connected a very early on and that connection has on, only grown.
2: That's amazing. That's so amazing. And so 15 years, do you guys have kids?
1: We do. In a family? We do. Yeah. We, we, we have a six-year-old son. His name's Aww. Sean. Yeah. And a two year old daughter whose name is Elle. And, you know, uh, our journey was we actually did the career, the career runs
0: mm-hmm.
1: in, in solidifying our careers before, before children. So we yeah. got married early, but it was this me and me and Tiff. My wife's name is Tiff. It was me and Tiff for really the first eight to nine years of our marriage. And then, uh, and then Sean came. Uh, and that certainly brought a new element that we, we were joyous to have uh, in our marriage. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that we have kids and we're we're in the middle of it, right? So we're still career building and then we have six yep. and two. So they, they're certainly our kids need us and they need us a lot. you got so. your hands full. <laughs>
2: it's so great. It's great. I like the fact that you guys waited as long as you did yeah. because with that comes maturity it yes. comes stability it comes so many things that i was in my early 30s as well when i had my yeah. first child and i look back on that and i remember and i remember feeling as a woman that that was like kind of late you know like cuz just i don't know media and sure. and your own biology like you know, once you hit 30, everyone's like, why don't you have a baby yet? Yep. And I'm like, uh, you know, it just hasn't, I'm like, I'm working on so many other things, you guys, you know, this, this is not become, you know, it hasn't been a priority. Sure. And, and I'm glad I waited because the moment that that child comes into your life, one is it's, it changes everything, right? Like everything. whatever you thought love was before you had a child is like not even comparable. Like, yes. like you thought you may have loved Doritos before, but you did not love Doritos, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you you thought you may have loved your spouse before but honestly you did not love like like you do love your spouse but it's a different love different. and um and yeah and so certainly being a parent and being responsible for another life requires a lot of that just so much more wisdom and maturity and patience which comes with you know an older age too and also just being with someone for long enough that you can build that together
1: absolutely so, Absolutely, I totally agree. That's been our experience. And uh, as our children have come into our lives and our family has expanded, we had a maturity level. And also, we we built my boss and mentor, David Bradley, who who's the owner of National Journal. He, he talks about relationship tissue, mm-hmm. and you know, you spend time to build relationship tissue. So when you add other things into the relationship, you, you have strong tissue, strong connection. And that can handle both the joyous things and the hard things. Right. And and I, I will say that my wife and I, we had that time to build relationship tissue. So when kids came in, they, they were coming in, our kids were coming into a strong foundation that we could we could build with just uh Tiff and I.
2: Yeah, that's really smart. Really, really smart. If we were to turn back the clock, Kevin, and go back to maybe the moment that you were moving into Virginia Beach and that transition in in your childhood, what's some advice you would have given to your younger self?
1: Oh, wow. What a good question. You know, I think to my younger self, as I was moving into Virginia Beach, I would have told myself, be intentional, be more intentional about building relationships that work really based on learning about someone else's experience. Okay. And I, I don't know if I would have told the eight-year-old, so, because I probably wouldn't have been thinking about that. But certainly when I got into high school, I think I missed opportunities because I was a pretty focused kid. I missed opportunities to, to really learn about friends that I had, but I didn't get to a deep relationship with them. Mm-hmm. That I would have learned earlier about how they experience the world. I think it would have made me a better person. And I, I did get to that relationship level with friends in college, probably because I just had a deeper level of maturity. And also, college is a different environment, right? You're with right. You're with these people.
2: Yeah, you're living with them. You're living
1: with people. Totally. And so it's so totally different. Yeah. But I, I have I have friends from high school that I know have like great different experiences and they see the world differently than me. That I had the opportunity to probably go a bit deeper with them than I did.
2: Mm, yeah, that's a that that's a really good lesson too. I mean, I think as we meet people today, whether that's professionally, personally virtually, right? Like in today's world, it's so interesting. I'd say 90% of the people I interact with, I've never met in person yes. before, ever. Yes. Like I have no idea how tall half of my staff is. I just don't know.
1: I, <laughs> it's so was, isn't that dynamic so interesting? We, we, we yeah. brought our staff back to the office for two days, starting in the spring. Right. And I had a great executive assistant who, who recently, actually, she's since been promoted. She was awesome and yeah. she's now doing great work within our business as a research analyst. It's great. But we talked to each other almost every day for an entire year
0: mm-hmm. over
1: this small box on our computers. Right. And then, right. you know, when we, we opened the office back up in the spring, she and I went to lunch and that was our first meeting.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: she was tall and I was like, I probably need what. myself. I, it, 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 it's so funny that the pictures we paint of right. who someone is and how tall they are or how short they are, et cetera. And I was like, I just didn't know you were tall. Uh, yeah. and, and we had a good laugh about that. happens
2: to me all the time. <laughs> I know because I'm, I'm 5'3", which isn't very tall at all. And I've met people and they literally have said to me, they're like, Sharon, you're so tiny. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I guess I am. But I'm like, gosh, I must come across as like this really big, I don't know what they think I am, right over Zoom. Like I'm coming across as a much bigger person <laughs> talking into the computer. Yeah. It's really funny. Great. Well, Kevin, I've loved our conversation so far. And we end every one of these chats with a speed round. Sure. Are you ready for speed round? I'm ready. That's the wrong answer. No one's ever ready. Just so you know. Yeah,
1: no I'm ready. <laughs> I'm convincing myself.
2: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) What's one thing about you that no one expects?
1: I'm I'm slowing the speed round. You see? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think no one expects me to be, have the sense of humor that I have.
0: Mm. So you
2: come across as being very serious, you think?
1: I come across very serious.
2: Do you have some good dad jokes that you like to tell? Oh, (laughs)
1: I'm horrible at dad jokes. I think, I think my sense of humor comes out of observations of situations. Yeah. So I won't say it's making fun of people because I I try not to do that, but I do tend to notice the funny dynamics of situations, and I can point it out, and it certainly becomes lightens the mood uh, yeah. in a serious environment.
2: I like that. So you have a sense of humor. People don't think that. Yeah. People think you're very serious. That's funny. What is a book, movie, or television show with characters that you relate to?
0: That's a good one.
1: You know, I really, I really relate to, to and remember the Titans. Mm-hmm. That that environment. Yeah. That all of the the players were in, and you know, I relate mostly to. Uh, the character, I'm horrible with names, but he was the defensive end and I'm not big like yeah. a defensive end. But I related to being in that leadership position that is trying to bring people together mm-hmm. and having to deal with my own feelings uh, about unity and yeah. also my own concerns about it. But overcoming that by saying, you know what, togetherness is stronger. So I think it was a character that would hear us. Uh, or Woody Harris mm-hmm. played. I, I identify with the position that he was in.
2: Yeah, that seems very true to who to who you've you've been so far anyway in our talk. So I can see that for sure. We talked about food mm. um, in Buffalo. Yes. What is your favorite mom dish? What's something that mom made or maybe still makes for you that's just your absolute favorite?
1: This is very apropos. My mom made great buffalo wings.
2: Really?
1: So, yeah. So when I was growing up, she would make hot wings and literally like every birthday she would make it for me. So I love my mom's hot wings.
2: Oh, and you grew up in that town. So that makes sense too.
1: Exactly right.
2: What's your least favorite food? What's something that if you saw it on a menu, you saw it on your plate, you're like, I'm not touching that.
1: Anything that involves cheeses like feta cheese or yeah. I'm, I'm not a big like cheese person on a salad or on like a, ha- I don't eat cheese on my hamburgers. So, but at the same point, I love cheesesteaks. So that, yep. that's weird for people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I tend not to like things that are too cheesy.
2: Got it. So no extra cheese for you. Yeah. No. Who is someone out there that you'd want to interview on a podcast?
1: Mm. TD Jakes. So he is, TD Jakes is a very, famous preacher, and I would more so just want to interview him because you know, a lot of his sermons have inspired me and encouraged me, and I'd love to interview him on how he, how he develops his sermons. Sounds good.
2: And then final question, what does being a modern minority mean to you?
1: I think being a modern minority is someone who is aware of the privilege that I hold, when you think about the experiences of my of my ancestors, of my great grandparents, who my great great grandfathers were sharecroppers, and my great grandmother was a, a maid for wealthy wealthy families. And two generations away from them, there's a president of a company, and that's a privilege that that was even possible, and it was for their hard work, not for their hard work and all the things they had to endure. So it's both understanding the privilege, but also the challenges that still remain for minorities in the workforce and in the world and bringing those two things together to understand my privilege and use it to make it better for my, my son and my daughter. Uh, so when they look back, they said, wow, our dad really made things better where we now have privileges that he didn't have.
2: I love that answer. Kevin, it's been such a pleasure to get to know you. You are making really big impact in the world and the values and the ethics and your perspective and the mindset that you're bringing, not just to the workplace, but really for for the next generation, for people on Wall Street, for people in the government. It's truly amazing. So. Thank you again for spending this time with us today,
1: Kevin Turpin. Uh, thank you so much, Sharon. And uh, I appreciate you having me. And that's our show.
3: Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform.
2: Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three.
3: Want to learn more? or got something to share. Visit modmypod.com or email us hi mom at modmypod.com.
2: You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you.
3: That's it for now. I've been Ramon Segal.
2: And I'm still Sharon Lee Toney.
3: Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
2: We'll talk to you soon.
0: Holy Potluck. Potluck.